Welcome to the Fourth Estate Podcast. We're dedicating this whole episode to a remarkable book and a wonderful author from our sibling imprint, The Friday Project. In No More Worlds to Conquer, celebrated international journalist Chris Wright takes us on a rarely trodden path through the lives of people whose famous accomplishments were achieved at such a young age that you'd be forgiven for wondering how on earth they could top them, whether it was better to just rest on your laurels and retire to a house by the sea. Jim Lovell, from the Apollo 8 mission and interviewed in this book, puts it thus. I could hide the earth with my thumb, and everything I knew disappeared. Earth ceased to exist. It was not there. So then the question is, what do you do? This is a free country. Thank you very much for your space programme. But what are you going to do next? Let's find out how some incredible people answered that question. I went and interviewed a man called Don Walsh for Discovery Channel magazine about five years ago. And Don Walsh is famous, will always be famous for one thing, and that's going to the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the Mariana Trench, uh, for the first time in 1960, with another man, Jacques Picard, who's since died. Uh, Huge achievement. It wasn't repeated for more than 50 years. Uh, When it was, it was by Jim Cameron, the movie director. And uh, my idea was to go over there and interview him on the 50th anniversary of the voyage. And uh, I went and found him in this remote town called Dora in Oregon. And he was polite enough talking through the voyage 50 years ago, but you could tell he was a little bored of talking about it. And then I asked him, what came next? You you were 27 when you did this. You're in in your late 70s now. Uh, What happens next after after this pivotal moment? And his face just lit up. And he said, well, a lot of people think I died. (laughs) Because uh, no one ever asked him about what came next. And in fact, he'd led an extraordinary life after this moment. He'd uh, commanded a submarine, served in two wars. He'd been to the Arctic and the Antarctic more than 50 times. There's a ridge in Antarctica named after him for his contributions to science. He launched his own school of the University of Southern California with the rank of dean. Uh, He dived on the Titanic, the Bismarck. No one ever asks him about any of those things because he's the man who went to the bottom of the sea in a funny-shaped boat. And then he talked for about an hour and a half, just brightly and enthusiastically, about later life. And when I finished the interview and I was heading home, I thought, well, this must be true for so many of these people. Mm. If you're known for one moment, uh, for walking on the moon, for uh, an Olympic record, then what do you do with the rest of your life when we've already kind of compartmentalised yourself, your life, into, into one line? So over the next few years, I set about finding people like that, partly this generation of Americans, of which Walsh was a part, and the Apollo astronauts were a part, Uh, also sports people, musicians, even people who'd had to overcome uh, some terrible ordeal that was not of their making, Mm. but people for whom they will always be known for one moment. And that was what fascinated me, this idea of what next? How do you find meaning in your life when its most uh, pivotal moment has already taken place? Mm. So, so it kind of um, tell me a little bit more about the criteria that you, that you found these people through and, and, and how they came about. The criteria were inexact in that uh, there was a certain amount of latitude. All it needed really was the fact that everybody knows them for one thing. It was a sort of name where you say... Uh, John McCarthy, and everyone says, oh, yeah, the former Lebanon hostage. And it will always be that way. Uh, But it did occur to me that you could apply that to a number of different 
area. So it didn't just have to be people who were explorers. It didn't just have to be sports people. It was anybody who really fitted that idea of just being known for uh, one iconic mm. uh, incident. Uh, and I was just interested in then finding out, is that a millstone around your neck? Does that drive you mad? Is it something that you can build from? And mm. the answer was different for absolutely everybody, which was one of the interesting things about it. Uh, so I had an ever-growing list of people who I thought would be interesting to talk to about that. Mm. And some either weren't interested or on closer inspection, they weren't quite right for the book or simply couldn't find them. That's mm. sometimes a problem. Uh, but what I ended up with, I think, was 16 people who, although their experience was incredibly diverse, all fitted that central premise. Mm. Of the of, kind of, yeah, what of, of, of what next. Yeah. yeah. Um, and who most surprised you when you were going through all these interviews? Because you talk about it in the book. I mean, it's just an amazing journey kind of around the world, all corners. I mean, well, firstly, tell me a little bit about, about that, about how that was writing this and kind of... Well, it was a great adventure, an incredible adventure. Mm. Um, Well, partly finding them. I mean, that's the first hard part, because most of these people are well into retirement now, uh, which doesn't make them particularly easy to find. Uh, So that was half of the issue. And then there was the great joy of finding them in some far-flung places Mm. and thinking, right, well, that was an excuse to (laughs) to go. You know, I would probably never have been to the town of Norman, Oklahoma, were it not for the fact that that's now where you find uh, Nadia Comaneci. I would never have gone to a remote island three hours north of Seattle if it hadn't been for the fact that Bill Anders is there. And I love all of that stuff. I mean, the fact is, even many of the non-Americans are actually in America now. Yeah. And uh, I think for a lot of British people, there's that fascination, that sense of the road trip mm. and uh, the joy of of discovering the lesser known places of America and hiring a car and going out and finding them. And it is wonderful. I'm as romantic about that as anybody. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> equally, um, it's sort of fun to uh, interview Ray Wilson in uh, a tiny town in, in Yorkshire or, mm. for that matter, John McCarthy in a, in a Starbucks in Teddington. <laughs> so, uh, um, you, you know, you, 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 you meet people wherever you can. Uh, and uh, other places were more exotic. Uh, I interviewed uh, the um, prisoner of war camp survivor Russ Ewan in uh, Sandakan mm. in Malaysia and Borneo, for example, and uh, Reinhold Messner I found in the uh, Italian Alps. So when you put it all together, I, I, I look at the list of places that I went to and thought, oh, what an adventure that yeah. was. And it, and it was an absolute delight uh, mm. to do it that way. And you, yeah, you were asking who was surprising yeah, who in most terms surprised of you? Uh, what you don't expect. Well, in one sense, uh, getting Bill Anders at all, he was on Apollo 8, mm. which uh, is a less famous mission than... Uh, Apollo 11 is the one that landed on the moon. But mm. before anyone landed there, uh, one spaceship had to... Sorry, spacecraft, I should say. Had to go to the moon and not land on it. Mm. And to my mind, that's the most visionary thing. People leaving Earth orbit uh, and just going vastly greater distances to another world. The first mm. people ever to see the Earth just hanging there in space, this mm. ball of colour. No one had ever seen all of the Earth at one time before. I mean, that, that just blows my mind, and, uh, you know, it must have done for them as well. Now, Bill Anders uh, has a reputation for being a little dismissive about the Apollo era, about being taciturn and not suffering fools gladly. Mm. In fact, one side sort of earned his trust, and he put me through my paces a little bit to make sure I knew what I was on about. Mm-hmm. But nobody was more generous more interesting and more open 
than he was. I, mean, I lived in his house for a couple of days. Uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. So in a sense, that in itself was uh, surprising, but this man wasn't particularly difficult. He was just, uh, I suppose, picky about who he really talks to and what he mm. talks about. And the great appeal for him was talking about something other than Apollo. He led this extraordinary later life in the corporate world. He was uh, uh, a highly successful chief executive of General Dynamics to the mm. point that Harvard um, Business Press actually runs case studies on him, which have nothing to do with Apollo. And that's, in later life, his greatest source of pride. Mm. So I found that to be uh, an interesting interview, just, just to get. Uh, who else was surprising i mean the story of ray wilson uh the former world cup winning footballer mm. is in itself a very interesting one and what was appealing about it was just how it's so different to anybody else's a lot of football fans could probably name 10 of the 11 people who won the world cup for england in 1966 everybody knows bobby charlton and bobby moore and you know jeff hurst and his famous hat trick for pretty much everyone, the last name they'd come to was Ray Wilson. The reason for that is that unlike everybody else who sort of stayed on the periphery of football, uh, not long after winning the World Cup, he thought, right, I'm leaving the game. I'm going to become an undertaker in Huddersfield, which was you know, a choice of career direction so unlikely that mm. he you know, pretty much vanished from the public uh, radar. That's why he was so hard to find. Mm. So that was an enormously surprising um, choice to make, I suppose. Yeah. And another that was interesting in that I sort of knew the bones of a story, but not quite enough about it. You know, Nadia Comaneci, who, uh, of course, got the first perfect 10 in Olympic history mm. in Montreal in 1976 at the age of 14. Yeah. And then got the second and the third and the fourth, the first seven. Uh, and just appeared on the world stage, this unknown person to most of us outside the Eastern Bloc, who is mm. this international celebrity and to this day one of the greats uh, of the Olympic movement. And uh, I knew that she had in later life defected from Romania, her native country, to the US. But I had absolutely no idea of quite what that had involved. Mm. And... Uh, in practice, it had involved, certainly after the Moscow Olympics in 1980, it involved eight or nine years of pretty constant supervision and a, a fairly miserable existence, as it was for all Romanians under Ceausescu, mm. uh, particularly after her own coach defected in 1981, until she eventually decided she had to go. And, uh, and defection, in her case, involved uh, a line of seven people, one hand on the shoulder of the one in front, in total, total darkness, wading through uh, mud and over frozen lakes in the depths of winter, knowing that if anyone saw them, they'd be shot, mm. until eventually they got across into Hungary, seeking asylum in Hungary after being arrested, then driving straight through the day to, Austria, sorry, to the Austrian border, which was then the true Iron Curtain, mm. and then the very next night having to cross seven barbed wire fences in a row mm. just to get across into Austria. And then the day after that, being given asylum by the US, put straight onto a Pan Am flight to New York, straight into a press conference. If you can imagine a madder period of 72 hours yeah. in anybody's life than that. So like I say, I knew the bare bones of it, but the truncation of that experience mm. and our expectation that she would suddenly turn up in America, as this fully rounded normal person was, was well, ridiculous, really. Mm. And uh, only through speaking to her did I really get a sense of just what an extraordinary journey that must have been. Mm. And did you find yourself kind of 
having to stop at a certain point where you think, no, I'm not going to look any more into this person's life because I kind of want it to be a, a surprise when I when I talk to them or were, did you just have to kind of, you know, research the shit out of it? Yeah, well, I, you, you can never do enough research, but mm. there's something in what you say, actually. You can mm. also, in a way, <laughs> do too much research, mm. particularly with something like the Apollo veterans. I mean, so much has been written about the space programme, yeah. but you go there... Uh, with something of a sense for on any technical or factual question, you already know what the answer is before you ask it. There's almost this dance where you're trying to get them talking on comfortable ground while also demonstrating that you know your subject matter. And uh, in a way, yes, sometimes it would be nice to think you're the first to hear some of these things. But on most of them, the life after the moment of fame, that was far less well-trodden yeah. ground. Um some had written autobiographies, uh, so Joe Kittinger, for example, who um, jumped out of a balloon from the edge of space in 1960, he'd written an autobiography, which told me a lot of uh, uh, some of the things that he'd done mm. in later life, not all. But uh, that really was where the surprises could be found, mm. uh, and the story hadn't really been told, uh, was in uh, what came next. Mm. Because you were admit in the prologue, or not maybe admit's the wrong word, but you very open about the fact that it is a male-centric list of people, um, and almost kind of necessarily so, and it's also a very white list of people. Yep. Um, I mean, talk about a little bit about why why that is the case. You know, I mean, the space program. Yes. What that kind of entailed and what that meant was restricted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I regretted that um, the white male mm. um, appearance of the book, but which is why I felt it necessary to point out why that's the case mm. uh, in the prologue. I mean, it's a reflection of the times, really. Yeah. I mean, the book is not exclusively about that generation of Americans, but they are really you know the, the heart of it, and at least half of the book is made up of them. And mm. the simple truth of it is that um, people... Uh, who were given the opportunity to do these uh, daring exploratory things, whether it was breaking the sound barrier or going to the bottom of the Mariana Trench or the moon. They were all men who'd come out of the military. Mm -hmm. uh, women were simply not uh, advanced through the military at that time uh, in the same way that they were in the Soviet Union. In fact, you know, the third person in space uh, was uh, Valentina Tereshkova, who was... Uh, Russian. She went up well more than 20 years before an American ever, American woman ever went into space, for mm. example. But in America, the truth is it was all men. Uh, and it's also true to say that the military at that time, in senior ranks at least, was predominantly white. So what you see is something of a reflection of that uh, in the book. Mm. You know, I would hope if there's ever an opportunity to do a second volume of this, it would be... Uh, um, possible to do something that's more broadly representative of, a, of perhaps a different time mm. with greater uh, representation well not just of women but of people who aren't white yeah <laughs> <laughs> who would you um on the subject of a book too who would be kind of your 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 ideal list of people to track down well i i would love to get one of the soviets in fact valentina tereshkova would be mm. ideal she was really held up as this iconic figure uh, in the Soviet Union, which must in itself have been both interesting and perhaps uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, she serves, uh, I believe, in, in the Duma, the Russian parliament now. Uh, and I spent about a year trying to get a hold of her. And I wouldn't say that she ever said no, but I couldn't quite make it happen, um, mm. in time at least. Uh, so either she or uh, another cosmonaut uh, would, I think, be very interesting from, from the Soviet side. Mm. Um, 
uh, Alexei Leonov, for example, is a, a very clear equivalent figure of Alan Bean in that he is both a former cosmonaut and a, an accomplished artist. It would be mm. interesting. If you think uh, in other areas, I, it's funny, I, I thought from the outset... Uh, that Harper Lee would be a, a perfect uh, person mm. for the book. This was well before the news came out yeah. that uh, a uh, sequel uh, was coming along. Now, Harper Lee hasn't given interviews, really, in mm. donkey's years. And, um, I, I, well, who knows, maybe with the sequel she will now. But, but I was thinking from the outset that would be a perfect person to have someone who wrote this masterpiece of a book and mm. then absolutely nothing in the subsequent years. Um, if we assume that she is likely to be unavailable. I would be very interested in speaking to uh, Arundhati Roy, who, yeah. of course, wrote the, uh, the God of Small Things. Again, this, to my mind, a masterpiece of a book, uh, a Booker Prize winner. And then, so far as I know, there's been no hint of any follow-up piece of literature. Mm. She certainly hasn't dropped off the face of the earth. She's uh, an important and vocal activist on a whole range of issues, both in India and internationally. But mm. I think she'd be a fascinating person to interview. Yeah. And there were others who... I couldn't reach who I just thought had interesting stories around them, not necessarily household names, but, for example, one story that very much interested me was um, a guy who he took uh, a very famous photograph. Uh, it's the photograph of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, being shot in mm. Dallas uh, two days after the assassination of President Kennedy. And it's a very famous picture. You'd, you'd, you'd know it if I talked about it. Um, Oswald's face, his mouth is open and his grimace because he's just been shot. There's a, a, a Texan um, police officer, I think, in a distinctive white suit with a, a big white Texan mm. Stetson standing next to him, just open-mouthed in shock. And it's a photograph that won the Pulitzer Prize for this photographer uh, in his 20s. Mm. Uh, but what's also interesting two things actually are interesting one the same guy was in the motorcade two days earlier behind kennedy saw the rifle he believes out of the uh, uh out of the what is it the texas uh, depository book building and he was changing his role of film couldn't shoot the picture okay. so two days earlier he would thought that's it i've missed the greatest opportunity i'll ever have in my life as a photographer two days later he's in the right place at the right time and what was also interesting was that another photographer standing next to him took the same picture, but about a tenth of a second earlier. Mm. So the difference that tenth of a second makes is that you can't quite see Oswald's reaction. He hasn't yet realised what's happened to him. Mm. Now, that man took that picture and thought, this is the picture that will make my career. But the difference of a tenth of a second meant it wasn't him. It was the other guy who won the Pulitzer and became mm. internationally famous. So stories like that I find enormously appealing about them, the knock-on effects that this tiny difference in time mm. uh, could have made. And, you know, is it good to win a Pulitzer Prize in your 20s? Or are you never, ever going to hit those heights again? Mm. And... Uh, uh, you know, just a few issues around that. So I have a a fairly fluid list in my mind of people I'd like to get if there's ever a, an opportunity to do this again. Mm. And I mean, if there, if we could kind of be, you know, talk fancy lists of this, of a kind of all, of all the people in the world that have ever lived and died. Are there any, you know, you think like, oh, you know, Christopher Columbus just would have been amazing to. Are there any kind of completely, obviously now ridiculous people, but anybody like that that kind of you would just have relished you know I guess kind of 
dream mm. dinner party kind of t- topic of conversation. Historical figures. Mm. Yeah, oh, I really should have. Uh, I really should have thought of that. I haven't thought about that. Uh, there were. There was a. <laughs> a fairly frequent phenomenon was thinking this person's going to be great and then I found oh they died yeah. already <laughs> um, <coughs> an example of that would have been the crew uh, of the um, of the bomber that dropped the uh, atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945 Nola Gay mm. Um, all of that crew have since died, but I have always wondered uh, what the captain or the person who armed the bomb must have felt in later life after having done that. Mm. Uh, this simultaneous feeling of uh, atrocity and service, of potentially having ended the war but having killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. Mm. Uh, I, I would have been interested to find somebody uh, who um, served on that crew, but it's too late. They're all mm. gone. And uh, this is true of a lot of things if you're trying to link it to a, to a wartime moment. Um, but in all honesty, the name I really, really thought this would be perfect, but it's never going to happen, was was Harper Lee. It mm. really was. I, I just thought she fitted the bill perfectly. But now you've asked me, I'm going to go away and think through history <laughs> of who would actually be Come back with the, dream the perfect list. historical figure to have, uh, yeah. to have got. Because when you think about it, ideally you want them to have done something very big, very young. Yeah. Uh, and not really be known for anything else uh, mm. afterwards. I mean, there must be thousands of figures through history who who fit the bill. But uh, yeah, I um, um, no, I'm I, at the moment I'm preoccupied with the ones who are still around, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely fair enough. Um, so you've lived and and travelled um, all over the world and mm. quite a lot um, in Asia, I understand. Yes. So how has that informed your writing? Well, I like to think that uh, it gives you a broader understanding that uh, everybody's different and that you know we're all a product of a whole range of experiences, not least where we're born, where mm. we grow up, the culture we grow up within. Uh, now, how much that's reflected within this book, since, as we've said, it is a fairly um, Anglo-American-centric mm. group of people, uh, I don't know, but certainly traveling internationally has given me a great fascination in people and in lives and in how life stories evolve as a function of, of what's around you mm. and all of that um so also it just makes it enormously appealing to go and find people in mm. person uh you know, if somebody would agree to an interview and say, I'd rather do it by phone, I would find that unbearable. I think, no, 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 no. I want to see what your living room looks yeah. like, or at least your hometown, because yeah. that's such a big part of it. I, I just love that sense of detail, and, you know, particularly with the trips to America. In a way, the smaller town, the better. There's mm. just so much detail and interest in these little places that nobody else sees. Mm. I, I, I just love all of that. And you know, really any excuse to go somewhere new is good. I, I'm very lucky, although the bulk of my career has actually been spent in financial and business journalism mm. uh, rather than the more fun stuff that has afforded me um, a lot of opportunity to travel very widely. I, I'm off to Azerbaijan on Thursday and then Georgia uh, not long uh. after that. And, you know, those places aren't really on the dream wish list of many people. But to me, because I've never been there, I just find that completely irresistible. (laughs) Who knows what's there? So So what would you have done if you hadn't ended up being a writer, do you think, to kind of 
fuel that you know that that scent that kind of need for it mm. well i did always from the earlier stage i did always want to be a writer journalism was never really the dream it was simply the easiest way i could figure mm. out to actually make a living out of writing yeah, and it's taken 20 years along the way to find <laughs> but firstly to accept that i don't have the imagination for fiction <laughs> and secondly to get a, a non-fiction idea and get it backed Mm. Uh, and to make it come together. But the only other thing that really captivated me when I was young, and I am still fascinated by this, is the idea of being a pilot. Mm. And uh, at a careers fair at a young age uh, in Merseyside, where I grew up, some BA pilot, I think he was, a very jaded man, <laughs> decided to tell me that, you know, if I hadn't hired anyone new in eight years and I should just give up and do something else. The most extraordinary performance from a careers advisor I think I've ever seen. And I've often thought what an impact this man had on me because I gave up there and then I thought, well, he must know what he's talking about. I'll just pursue the writing instead. But I do know pilots now mm. and uh, the lives they lead fascinate me. I can see they're not living the dream perhaps to the same way you might have thought. I mean, mm. commercial aviation is tough work. You're expected not just to be a pilot, but a diplomat and, you know, a security guard and, uh, mm. and many other things. And, of course, that degree of constant travel is, is, is not exactly conducive for, for family life, I'm sure. But the idea of, uh, of piloting these things and constantly being on new routes to new places and discovering yeah. the world like that, I mean, that was always very appealing. So maybe... I would have done that. Mm. And where did you write this book? Well, uh, it sort of evolved. The early chapters uh, date from interviews that I did while I was living in Singapore. Mm. Uh, because strangely, Discovery Channel magazine is actually headquartered and edited from there, not from the oh. States. It's a long story. but uh, <laughs> So uh, in the early days, the interviews at least were done from there. And I had this idea that some of the material, particularly if I did follow-up interviews, mm. could support a book like this. Uh, it wasn't until I moved to London that uh, originally the Friday Project, Scott Pack, um, backed the idea uh, and then gave a firm deadline and a word count, which is exactly what all journos need, because mm -hmm. nothing gets done <laughs> unless you have <laughs> a, a tight deadline <laughs> and, uh, uh, and a word count to, to dramatically exceed, in my case. <laughs> and uh, so then I started uh, researching again uh, in earnest. Um, more than half of the interviews were done after that date. Mm. And all of the writing. So it was written in London. The actual writing didn't take all that long, a couple mm. of months, I suppose, because... Uh, uh, as any journalist will tell you, it's the research that takes all of the time. Mm. Uh, the setting up of the interviews, for talking of people into meeting you at all. Mm. And I like to write very quickly after an interview while the whole sense of it is, is fresh in my mind. Mm. Uh, you know, with every intention of revising it, but I think if I looked at most of the chapters, there's probably very few that underwent all that much revision. Some did. Mm. Uh, but in most cases, your initial instincts it seems to me you're probably um, the right ones about what's interesting and, uh, and important and so yeah, on. Absolutely. And you can sense that. I mean, also the book, it, it, it flows together so incredibly well considering the fact that there are these, you know, 16, talking about 16 people who have all done such varied things, but it just, yeah, it comes together. It's such a cohesive piece. I think oh, it's thank just, you. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, final question, which uh, writer, either fiction or non-fiction, do you most admire? On the fictional side, uh, I'm a big fan of the Australian writer Tim Winton. Mm. Uh, also, this is a fashionable answer, but it's a true answer, Hilary Mantel. Uh, I just can't get enough of those yeah. books. That ability to bring a world to life like that is, is just extraordinary, I mm. think. Uh, if I'm thinking of non-fiction writers, uh, it's 
probably fair to uh, mention a book that this book might be uh, compared to, I think. Uh, the, the writer Andrew Smith wrote a book, Moon Dust, um, which looked purely at the people who'd walked on the moon. Mm. Uh, in fact, when I first found that this book existed, I was devastated because I thought, <laughs> I thought because I'd, I'd interviewed by then two uh, people who'd walked on the moon. I thought I've had this brilliant idea. I'll find all of the ones who walked on the moon. And thought, oh no, not only have you done it, you're also British like me, and it's brilliant. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a, an inspirational. Mm read and I thought well if I can't do this um, I will limit the moonwalkers to a single chapter so that's all the overlap there actually is mm. and instead I'll broaden my idea uh, to to you know other people and, and other variations on uh, on this theme so it was a good thing really mm. uh, but that was the sort of uh, approach to non-fiction where there's real style and verve about it it's not an academic textbook mm. there's a real attempt to um, put life into it including his own life he probably does that more than i have in this one but uh, you know turn it into something of uh, a spiritual quest in a way finding these people mm. i i find that a great piece of writing and uh, uh yeah inspiring too you to seek this book out. I wish I could show you the cover because it has such an iconic and astonishing photo on it. No More Worlds to Conquer, 16 People Who Defined Their Time and What They Did Next, by Chris Wright, is published on Thursday the 21st of May, available in hardback from the Friday Project, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>